about, uh, I don't know, about three or four months ago, Brother Herrick came and we met together. And, and he began to present his call that God has placed on his life. And he has uh, began to start the process to receive his minister's license with the Missouri District. And part of that process is uh, he has to preach. And uh, I want him to come. This is not just giving him a platform so he can check off a box on a minister's license. But I believe in the call of God that he has placed on Brother Jonathan. I want us to stand. And Brother Jonathan, I want you to come. And I want you to take your liberty. You give us the word on this Wednesday night. Could we give Brother Jonathan a welcome as he preaches for us? Oh, this is not daunting at all. Okay. <laughs> you guys can sit down. <clears throat> I might have you stand again, but right now you can sit down. Well, first off, I want to say thank you, Pastor, for giving me this opportunity. I do not take it lightly. I've been a nervous wreck for the last several weeks preparing for it, and I hope, uh, I hope that doesn't show too much. Um, I also want to say thank you to my father for um, preparing me. I don't know. To, uh, if it wasn't for him, obviously I wouldn't be here. He's the person that endowed steadfast faith and an unwavering faith in God and, and the desire even to do all of this. So thank you, and I'm sorry I'm not wearing a tie because <sighs> that really matters to him. Um, and last, my wife that's always uh, late, um, she's, supposed to, she's supposed to come and do uh, a testimony, but... I don't think she's prepared for that. <laughs> but I think she had prepared a special song, didn't you? <laughs> no. No, and I'll stop there before I sound like some sort of award ceremony or something like that. But tonight I want to talk to you about a subject matter that I know for sure came from God because it is not the one that I would have picked uh, right off the bat. Uh, I want to talk to you about prayer, but maybe not exactly what you would what you would think in regards to prayer. My my initial text, I wouldn't call it the focus of my sermon tonight, but my initial text comes from Psalm 88 and 13. It says, "But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me?" It's not the most uplifting of psalms. Most psalms have some sort of joy in them, but this one definitely does not. The entire chapter is filled with discouraging words. Uh, we don't know who the psalmist is. Uh, most scholars believe that he's just a random guy. Uh, he's unnamed, unknown. But the few things we do know from him about him come from the scripture, and that is that he was sick. He was dying. He was at death's doorstep, and, and he was sick since he was a child. Some scholars believe that he might have even had leprosy. And if you know anything about leprosy, uh, at that time it was uncurable and it made you an outcast from all people, destitute, unclean, nobody wanted to be around you. Um, and the psalmist had this since he was a child. Here in the middle of this psalm he says, Oh Lord, why do you reject me and hide your face from me? If you would, Pastor, why don't you pray for us to get started here? I would appreciate that.
Amen. So what I want to talk to you about, like I said, is prayer, but I specifically want to talk to you about when prayer doesn't work. I know that sounds like blasphemy, and, and hopefully I can explain my, my reasoning, and, I, and I'll get there, but this, this prayer that we just read, it's from a desperate man crying in genuine need for help, but what is met seemingly is deaf ears. God didn't meet the problem. The, the man was never healed. If you think that only applies to him because he's some nameless character or person in the Bible, it doesn't just stop there. There are countless examples all throughout the Bible of great men and women of faith that begin to question whether God is even listening to their prayers. For example, in 2 Samuel, Daniel fasted and pleaded with God for the life of his sick son, but the child still died. Job said he cried out to the Lord, O oh God, but you did not answer. The Apostle Paul even asked the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh, but it remained until he died as far as we know. Even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed to the Lord to let the cup pass from him, to let this, this cross that he was about to bear pass from him and find another way, but there was no other way. How do we as Christians, and I hope this gets a little up more uplifting here in a minute, I think it will, but how do we as Christians make sense of that in our brain? How do, how do we make sense that an all-knowing, all-loving God wouldn't fix these problems? Many of us have asked the question, pondered it endlessly. Many in the world believe there's no God simply because of that fact. If God exists, then why? Why is there death? Why is there famine? Why, why is this and that happening? And they just throw out God simply based off of that premise. These examples, these questions, these, these all seem to come in direct conflict with, with the often quoted scriptures that we love to hear. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Several examples of scriptures like that. But if that be, then why? Why, God, is this still happening to me? Why am I in the middle of this battle? That's what I hope to try to talk to you about tonight. I hope to possibly answer some of these questions or at least present to you a different way of thinking about things and maybe a solution to some if you're in the middle of a situation yourself. And to start, I'd like to go on the practical side. I don't want to stay here too incredibly long, but there's eight things that I found in researching. I came to the conclusion that there's eight specific things that you could be doing right now in your life that are negatively affecting your prayer life. Eight specific things. So this is the teaching side of it, but I do want to warn you, this is not where I want to get, so I'm going to fly through these eight things. It's because I want to move past this, okay? So, and I'll have scriptures. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to name the the specific category that could be holding you back, and then I'm going to give a scripture. Brother Andy has been awesome, and he has listed all of my scriptures for me because I knew I'd have a plethora, and I might talk about it for a minute, but our goal is to get past this so we can move to something more. The first thing that could be holding your, your prayer life back, your answers that you're expecting from God, is sin. That's pretty obvious. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ears dull that he cannot hear. 
But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and the sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So like I said, that one's pretty obvious. If you're sinning, if there's sin in your life, it's going to probably cause some tension between you and God. Okay? The second one is disregarding the law. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayers are an abomination. That's a big one. I had never heard that. <laughs> but I didn't say it. The Bible did. It says if you disregard the law, if you're reading the Bible and you're like, eh, I don't know about that. Meh, whatever. Your prayers, your very communication with God, he begins to hate it. It becomes an abomination. It becomes disgusting to him. So if you're doing that, stop it. All right. Lack of... <laughs> Next, the third thing is a lack of compassion for those in need. Okay? Some of these are obvious. Some are not so obvious. But Proverbs 21.13 says, and if these aren't the exact um, versions, I apologize. I didn't communicate that as well to him. But Proverbs 21.13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So if you're hearing the cries of somebody that needs help, if you're walking down the street and somebody asks your assistance or whatever it might be and you just disregard them, then God will do the same for you when you ask and petition something to him. Again, this is not me. This is just what I found. I have sources if you want them, okay? The Bible being the prominent one. Um, the fourth thing is your pride. And this is a big one. Uh, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're praying to God and it comes from a haughty position of, God, I have done this, I have done that, I deserve this. Why is this not happening for me? I, Of all people, God, why is this not happening? God doesn't appreciate that. He needs a humble spirit, as the scripture says. Okay? The fifth thing is disobedience. Again, I think this is an obvious one. Deuteronomy 1, 43 and verse 45 say, So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord, the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. Skipping to 45, it says, And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. I think this one goes hand in hand with submission. Uh, and it came to me when Pastor was talking about submission. It coupled perfectly with this. When you disobey the word of the Lord, when you disobey the Lord in your life or those that God has placed in your life, uh, you in submission to, your pastor, your parents, your teachers, whoever it might be, you're drawing a disconnect when you start commu to communicate with God and ask petitions of him. The sixth thing is wrong motives. All right? James 4, 1 through 3 says, What cause quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So wrong motives. I think that one's a little bit of a peculiar one. But if you, if you look at that verse and what it's trying to say there is you're asking God for something. God, I need this in my life. But your motive, your intention is to go steal it anyway, <laughs> to get it for yourself. If you're not winning the battle and God's not fighting for you in the way that you want him to, so you go kill the enemy yourself. If you have the wrong motives, the wrong intent within your heart, God doesn't honor that. The, the next one is pretty obvious, doubt. 
All right, James 5, or 6 and 7. It's written James 1, 6 and 7. There you go. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I think this one is huge, and we talk about it a lot. We can't doubt. We can't have doubt. We have to have faith, right? So if we come to the Lord asking him for something, but if we're kind of like, I'm not really sure if you can do this, but here we go. All right, we have to have faith that the almighty God that we're asking our, our, our request of is able to at least do those things. The last one, and like I said, then we're done with this little portion. The last one is broken relationships. This is one that I would have not come up with on my own, but it's definitely there and there's definitely scripture for it. Matthew 5, 23 through 26 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there at the altar and go. For be, first be reconciled with your brother, then come back and offer your gift. So the last thing, like I said, not quite as obvious as the others, would be to make sure that there's no ill between you and your, those around you. Now, like I said, that's not where I want to say, but I think those are important and fly through them. Sin, disregarding God's law, lack of compassion for those in need, pride, disobedience, wrong motives, doubt, and broken relationships. If any of those things are in your life, are current to you right now, they're affecting your prayer life, whether you realize it or not. And there might be more. That's the list I found. All right, I'm not omniscient. I don't know. So that's the things that could definitely be affecting your life. But like I said, that's not necessarily what I want to st- where I want to stay because a lot of us are thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not there. I'm not doing any of those things, or I've done all right in all of those areas. So that's not me. But still, I'm in the middle of this battle, and it's not being answered. I would remind you then of the other examples from Scripture. Job, like I referenced earlier. Job, by all accounts, was a righteous man. We aren't given any wrong that he did in the Scripture. Prior to, during, after, he, by all accounts, was a righteous individual. Same goes for Paul. Paul had repented, and he was a righteous individual, yet their needs were not being answered at the time. So how do we as Christians reconcile this in our mind. Why, God, why do, you, why do you let this happen to me? Why do I have to fight these battles in the middle of all this? Why is this happening? So to get back to that point, I'd like to take maybe a non-biblical approach. Not necessarily that I'm going to sin doing it, but a non-biblical approach in that it's not directly from Scripture. Uh, one, when I was in college, uh, one of my favorite classes was logic, Socratic logic. And if you know me just a little bit, or are Facebook friends with me, you might know that I like a good debate. Uh, I like to argue. My wife would totally disagree with you, my, me or whoever. But I, I do like a good debate. And, and part of that came from so- Socratic logic class because logic taught us how to debate. They're called syllogisms. It's building an argument that's defined that has a stance that you can't argue with it. But what it also did is it taught you how to dissect a very poor argument, right? How to falsify something, to find the, find the false facts within it, as they'd actually say. One of those ways, and it's probably my favorite, and actually Brother Andy joked at me the other day because of it, is pointing things, pulling them all the way to their absurd conclusion. It's called reductio ad absurdum, all right? It's a big fact. You don't have to know the, the word, but reductio ad absurdum. It's taking something to its absurd, extreme conclusion, 
logical conclusion, okay? You might not know the term, but you've definitely probably used reductio ad absurdum at some point. The most primary example you can come up with is the teenager that asks their parents for something or to do something, and the parent says no. And the teenager says, but all my friends are doing it. All right. And what's the parent's reply? If all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? That's taking their argument to the logical conclusion, the absurd conclusion, and very quickly breaking it down, telling the kid that, well, just because your friends are doing it doesn't mean it's okay to do. So I'd like to do that kind of with this conversation, okay? The logical conclusion or the absurd conclusion to my prayers not being answered is that everyone's prayers be answered, all right? Hopefully I don't throw you off too much here, but everyone's prayers being answered in the way that they wish their prayers to be answered. If God was a genie and we rubbed the bottle and we got our three wishes from him. So rather quickly, work weeks would be 40 minutes, not 40 hours. Praise the Lord, right? Every team would be in the Super Bowl and all of them would somehow win, all right? That's a great thing, I guess. I don't know. I don't watch sports. But there's also some other requests that would fall in there, some, some more, you know, juvenile ones. My, my, my daughter Scarlett, she would have a couple requests as well that would obviously be met if that's how God operated with the world. Her first would be that Elmo would never be turned off. It would run 24-7 on a loop on every single monitor and iPhone and every different device. It would be continuous. The next would be that she would be glued to her side, or her mother would be glued to her side at all times. All right? Those would be her prayer requests. Rather quickly, we can see probably the failure in that reasoning. Within a very short period of time, I think even Elmo would grow annoying to Scarlett. Definitely by teenage years, being glued to her mother would become frustrating. And likewise with the other arguments, 40-hour week, you know, or 40-minute week, we know what work would ever get done and what sport is fun if everybody's winning. But if we take prayer to that conclusion, we can obviously see that it doesn't work out very well, right? Right. So what you're thinking now is, well, I'm not asking for God to answer all the prayers, just some of them, just some of the big important ones, especially the ones of his believers, of his children, right? Of those who are Holy Ghost filled, spirit filled and loving him and praying honest, unselfish prayers. That's a hard question. That's a really hard question, actually. And it made me research quite a bit. And the way that God directed me, I believe, to go about this area is maybe unorthodox. And I started looking into articles and books about parenting. There became a trend rather quickly. And of course, then I was on Facebook. <laughs> and after all of my research, I came across an article that I felt just summed it up really well. So you can take this with a grain of salt, but it did check out and I've, I've checked references for it and I believe it holds up to my experience as well. The article was 13 things that good parents don't do. I'm not going to read all 13 of them. I'll hit a few and then stop on one major one that happened to be their last. And I feel like it holds some substance for us tonight. All right. 13 things that good parents don't do. They don't parent out of guilt. Makes sense. They don't make their child the center of the universe. They don't give their child power over them. They don't give their child everything they want. They don't let their child avoid responsibility. I'll stop there real quick. Just because if your prayers are that of 
something to get you out of something. So you didn't pray for your test, or you didn't study for your test, sorry, in five minutes before your class starts. God, please, if you just fill my brain with all of this calculus, I will love you forever, Lord. Please, please, just let it happen, Lord, please. That's not very good parenting if he just floods your memory with it. Not saying he couldn't do it, but God's not going to let you get out of your responsibilities, all right? Next is he doesn't prevent his child from making mistakes. Good parents don't prevent their child from making mistakes. God made us free thinking. You know, we have, we have a free will, and we're allowed to make mistakes, and hopefully we learn from them. But the one that really stuck out to me is this. It said they don't shield their children from pain. And if you continue reading the article, it says it's tough for a parent to watch their kids struggle with hurt feelings or anxiety, but kids need practice and firsthand experience in tolerating discomfort. Strong parents provide their kids with the support and the help they need, coping with the pain so their kids can gain confidence in their ability to deal with whatever hardships are thrown their way. And I immediately read that, and I thought, man, I think that's how God works with our prayers. I think he handles our prayers like a father or a mother would their child, asking a request of them. Sometimes the request is given, and then other times they feel like, well, this isn't the best thing for you, even though you think it is. God's responsibility to us as a heavenly father is to provide parental support to protect us, but ultimately allow us to grow and mature as adult Christians, right? Sometimes our requests, just like Scarlet's, though, are not quite as good as we think they are. Even if they might seem noble at the time, they might not hold up over time. Sometimes God's silence is his allowing us to grow through the situation, him allowing us to grow through the pain. I don't know. I do know that many have said that God always answers prayers. You just don't like the answers always. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and then other times it's just wait. That's probably true. It's probably, probably how, it is what it, how it is. But I would like to maybe, like I said, give advice and steer maybe in a different direction. Pastor said it last night, and it was, so, it was totally true. It's always true. There's no right, way to, no right way to pray. There's no wrong way to pray. You just pray how you pray. But <laughs> maybe there's a more effective way to pray. And that's what I'd like to submit to you today. All right? Someone told me, a good friend of mine told me a few weeks ago, that he is brutally honest with God at all times. When he's mad, he says, God, I am mad. When he's upset with him and he feels like he's being mistreated and his life's not going the way he thinks he is, he calls God a jerk because God is being a jerk at the time. Now, not saying that's exactly the way you need to go about it, okay? Not totally agreeing with him there. But I do think God appreciates the honesty, all right? I do think I know he appreciates the honesty, he likes for people to be real with him. We oftentimes, and I'm guilty of it so often, knowing God is omniscient, we still come to him as some fake human being.
trying to hide and mask our feelings and, and the things that we were thinking and, and the struggles that we're going through, thinking that if he doesn't know about it, it's, it's okay. It doesn't need to happen. But if we're real with God, if we're honest with God, I think that's when he begins to appreciate us The next, or, or help us. The next thing that I think we should try to do, we want to be honest with God, but I think we maybe need to work on how we approach God. If you were living in Britain, Great Britain, and you were approached by the Queen of England, right? Her Majesty, the Queen. There's a whole list and protocol of things that you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to kneel and curtsy multiple times. You don't make eye contact. When you finally do make eye contact, it's after she's said something to you, but not before that and five minutes later, whatever it is. There's a whole list of things that you're supposed to adhere to. Um, and then when it eventually does get to the time that you talk, you're usually giving her some sort of admiration. Oh, you're such a good queen. Thank you so much for all you're doing. And then when you get past all of that, then you eventually would ask her, is there anything that I can do for you, queen? And then maybe at a certain point, she'll ask the same of you. Is there anything I can do for you, my royal subject? You, you would never walk up to the queen Oh, yes, Your Majesty, uh, I would like uh, uh, the best-paying job in the land, and if you could jolly be make it the best, highest-paying one there, that would, be, that would be terrific. Thank you, ma'am. You, <laughs> you would never walk up to the queen and start demanding things of her, would you? How much more, and I knew you know where I'm going with it, but how much more does that apply to God, right? We are his children. We're his subjects. We're, we're here to do his will, right? So when we, when we walk up to him, why do we just start and I, I'm guilty of it too, like I said. We immediately, when we, we find the time to pray, when we need to pray, right? I need something right now, God. That's what I'm coming to you with. The best and most prime example of it, though, of how we're supposed to pray, is the Lord's Prayer. Right? I don't think I can get any uh, disagreement there, but... It starts off, and you can quote it with me if you'd like. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Right there, that's the first thing. That's the first time Jesus, in this prayer, asked for anything. It's actually the only time that he asked for any worldly need there. And he asked for daily bread. Daily bread is a representation of provision. You know, getting through exactly what I need to get to the next day. He's not asking for steak and potatoes. He's, not a, he's saying, God, please provide for me for what will get me, in, get me to tomorrow. Then he goes back and he asks for forgiveness. Not necessarily a worldly thing. He's wanting to be right with God, aligning with God. And then uh, deliver me from temptation and all of those things. And he goes back to worship. In the middle of it all, he only makes one petition, and that's just to survive, right? My point is this. Maybe, maybe, we don't need to spend all of our time asking God to meet our needs. Maybe. Maybe we don't need to be begging him for things, asking him to do this or that. Maybe, maybe we should spend our time seeking him. Aligning our heart with his heart, our brain to his will. Maybe that's what we should be doing with our prayer. Because most of the Lord's prayers, that's what it's doing. I can attest that when my prayers have been effective, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to be more like him. I'm not trying to get my will across or pray for things that I need to be done. I'm praying that his will be done in my life. If we ask something, maybe it should be, Lord, make me. Make me a vessel that you're able to use at all times. 
I'm not trying to say don't, don't ask God for things. There is plenty of scripture and foundation and lots of stuff for you to build an argument that you should ask God for everything. And I think you should. You should speak to God and ask him for whatever you need. I'm simply saying that if we turn our prayers into a prayer to become more like him, that once we become more like him, our desires, our needs, our worries, our concerns will be more like his. And he has a perfect will. And that's what we want to be a part of, right? We also have to remember, we serve an omniscient God. He already knows your needs. He knows your desires, your wants, everything that you're going to ask him, he knows them. When you verbalize it to him, you're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. Matthew 6, 8 says, For the Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. It says it right there. Our petitions to God are a way for us to speak in faith, knowing that he is going to answer that in whatever way he sees fit. We're not saying, God, do it this way. We're saying, God, do it your way, right? And the closer we are to God, I think those hard questions of why and how come this is happening will start to maybe fade a little bit. We've said it before. I've said it before over this pulpit during song service. We don't see the massive plan. We see a small, finite bit of it. God sees the bird's eye view, flying over, seeing everything all across the land while we sit in our cars with our foggy windshield with traffic filled up in front of us with an accident three cars away that we don't even see, right? That's how we live our life. But God sees the big picture. So, and probably a complete rebuttal to my entire sermon so far, I really don't know why God does certain things he does to the people the way that he does them. I don't think anybody knows that except God himself. If he reveals that to you, tell me. But I do know that God has a perfect will and and his desire is for his children, as many of them as possible, to live with him in an eternal home in heaven. That's his will. I think sometimes we as Christians, as believers, have to believe and submit to maybe the idea that the end justifies the means. And that is not always the most fun saying, but maybe, just maybe, the hurt you feel right now will translate into salvation for somebody else. The pain that you're feeling in your life might be that relatable quality that allows you to witness to somebody and to pull them out of darkness. I think we're supposed to use God's hurt that that he's allowed in our life as an aid in his mission to seek and save all that are lost. So, if you're praying for a need to be answered, I think there's a reason for it. I think if you're praying and you're in the middle of a turmoil and the weight of the world is bearing down on you and and, and it's heavy and you're frustrated, I think what you need to do at that time is pray not God, why is this happening and mean it in a negative way of I I don't want this to be happening but ask in genuine wisdom and enlightenment, God, why is this happening so that I can use it to your glory show me why this is happening so maybe it'll get me through the process but maybe I'm supposed to be here forever, I don't know 
Maybe I am. I, I don't know. If this is what this, my thorn in the side as Paul had to bear and it made me a better witness for you, maybe that's what it's supposed to be. But at least I know why now. But oftentimes we say it in an arrogant, frustrated manner. God, why is this happening to me right now? I don't want this to be happening. My life would be so much better if this was not happening, if I didn't have to battle this every single day. We as Christians, faith believers, think, and I know we, we say it so often that it's not, but we still get in our mind, I still get in my mind, that because I'm a Christian and because I love Jesus and I'm following him and I'm doing everything I can do to be right, that I'm not going to feel trouble anymore. His word literally promises the opposite of that. Promises the opposite of clear skies. It actually says you are going to have the same struggles as every single other person on earth, believer or non-believer. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9 says, Whom resist steadfast in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The difference, though, because there is a difference between the afflictions of the world and the afflictions of the church is that in the middle of our turmoil, what makes it all okay is that there are a few more optimistic promises for his church, for his people. The first being, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That scripture means more to me as I grow older. I don't know why, but he'll never leave you or forsake you. You're never going to feel alone if you just whisper his name. He's going to be right there with you. Even in your darkest time of life, when everything is closing in and it all seems lost, God is there with you. You might not be getting the answer you want, but God's there. And he has your best intentions at his heart, if I said that right. He wants what's best for you. God cares for you. The prior verse to the one I just read, I, I read 1 Peter 5, 8. That was be sober and vigilant, and it goes on to say that you're going to suffer the same afflictions as the world. The scripture just preceding that, the one right before it is 1 Peter 5, 6. This is what it says. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that ye might be exalted in due time. All your care upon him, for he cares for you. And I know I went about it in reverse order, but that's my main text for tonight. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. There are two versions of care in this scripture. The first is an internal care, our care, our frustrations, our worries, our anxieties, all those things we're talking about, the things we battle, the things that weigh us down, the heavy things, world, life in general. Cast your cares on him. That's what that is. The second care is God's action. It's a verb because he cares for you, right? I thought it was really interesting when I looked up the definition, the verb definition of care, because there's multiple meanings to care, but the verb definition of care, I felt brought some enlightenment to the subject matter. Care. Serious attention or consideration applied to doing something correctly or to avoid damage or risk. I'll read it one more time. Serious attention or consideration applied to doing something correctly or to avoid damage or risk. When you plug that definition into the scripture, this is what I came up with. Cast, throw, 
Throw all of your worries, your concerns, your anxieties, the heaviness of the world, all of those things that are bogging you down, throw them to God because he pays serious attention to them. And he is doing everything he can do to avoid damage in your life. God cares for you. And if I could get one thing across, it would be that, is that God cares for you. So when you think, God isn't listening to me. When you feel neglected or, or the things are falling on deaf ears, that your prayers aren't being answered and you're getting frustrated, in the middle of it all, your requests are not falling on deaf ears. They are falling on quite the opposite, the contrary. They're rising to an omniscient God who already knows your needs who understands your pain because he went through it himself. Jesus is the only God that, that, that can boast that example. He went through the pain yourself, himself. He came to earth and he died for you. He went through that. He prayed that the cup be passed from him. He didn't want to be in the middle of turmoil and frustration. He didn't want to carry a cross. He didn't want that at all. But he submitted himself to God's ultimate will. When you're praying... When you're praying, maybe more effectively. <laughs> your requests and your needs, they, they, they rise up to the throne of the Almighty. A powerful creator who, who formed the earth in his hand and holds it. The things we're battling, the cries that you don't think anybody's hearing, the emotions you keep bottled up, the sickness, the hurt, the pain, the, the battlings in your life, your frustrations, God knows them. He knows them. And he wants you to cast them at them. He wants you to give them to him. Not just because he knows them, but because he cares about you. He wants you to give them to him because he cares for you and he wants to create a solution for you. But that solution has to be a part of the will. And sometimes that means a little bit of correction in our own lives. So, I submit to you this. Give your cares to God. Allow him to fight your battles. Scripture, another promise is that he goes before you in battle and he goes behind you. He surrounds you in battle. When your life is seemingly horrible and everything around you is crumbling and frustrations are surmounting, God goes before you in battle and he's going to fight for you. He's going to do everything that he can to make sure that your life is not corrupted and you're not damaged, like that care definition said. So I, I ask you to stand. Let God fight for you and don't, don't let the enemy discourage you. Don't let the world steal your eventual victory. God, God is always victorious. Everything that he does, he has victory in. So if you're aligned with God, you're going to have victory, right? I think that's how it works, right? If we're tied to God, we're going to have victory eventually. It might take a little bit of bumps and bruises on the way there, but we're going to get victory. And what you're asking now at this point, if you're me at least, listening to the sermon, I would say, so what do I do in the meantime? Right now I'm waiting, and it's aggravating. Right now I'm waiting, and it doesn't feel good, and it's frustrating, and I don't want to be doing this anymore. Well, I'd point you back to the examples. What did the unknown psalmist do? 
Many of you have probably never even read Psalm 88. Believe me, it's not uplifting. And the reason that is, is because he didn't do anything right. He's an unknown psalmist, and that's probably why. They probably didn't want to give him a name. He didn't do anything right. The entire 18 scriptures, all he did was complain. He complained about everything. He complained about his frustrations. He complained about his illness. And in the middle of it all, he didn't give any admiration, any reverence, any glory, any praise, worship, anything to God. He had 18 verses of pure complaint. So I don't think that's what we're supposed to do in the meantime. Because it didn't work for him. I don't think it's going to work for us. But we often, that's what we do, I think. We get in the middle of frustrations and we just complain to God. Yes, we're being honest with him, but all we're doing is being brutally honest with him and we're not getting anywhere. So what do we do in the meantime? We look at our other examples. There's more. Like I said, the unknown psalmist isn't the only one that went through it. You had Paul, you had Job, you had Jesus, you had David. What did they do different? Anybody know? He worshiped. They praise God. And I would ask you, if you would come to the front, I want to close this out in a little bit different way, but if you'd come to the front and maybe we approach God in the middle of our frustrations, like David and Paul and some of those others in the Bible, we begin to worship him. And if you don't think there's scripture for that, believe me, I've got it. I've got a lot of scriptures here on my paper. All right? Job did eventually receive his desired, desired outcome. His prayer request was answered. Paul one of the greatest apostles of all time. As far as we know, he still died with the thorn in his side. As I earlier said, though, I think the reason we're, I think there's a reason why we're in the middle of a, the situations that we're in sometimes. Okay? And I think when we're in those middle of those situations, what we need to do, like I said earlier, is we need to pray for wisdom, right? We need to ask God, why am I in the middle of this? From a gracious understanding part point of view, right? And I'll backtrack. If you're one, in one of those first eight categories, there's sin in your life, there's disobedience, there's doubt, there's any of those categories for you, stop right there and fix it. That's really easy. Those are laid out in scripture. You can, you can attack those, you can repent, you can do all of those things immediately. But for all the others that are in that other category, where you're in the middle of frustrations and things aren't working out the way that you want them to, Scripture says to do something. We already said it. It says praise and worship, right? But there's a, there's a scripture nestled in Isaiah that I, I don't think I had ever at least thought upon. I'm sure I've read it at some point. But it's talking about when you're entering battles and when God is fighting, all right? What makes it the most effective? What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to sit back and we're supposed to just let God fight that battle for us. Isaiah 61.3 says, He provides a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When we're heavy, when we're desperate, when we're frustrated, when we don't know what to do, you put on the garment of praise. You put on the garment of praise. Lord, I Jesus. Lord, I worship you, Jesus. Lord, you're good. Lord, I don't know why sometimes, Lord Jesus, but I worship you, Jesus. Lord, sometimes I feel heavy and frustrated, God, but I worship you, Lord Jesus.
is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. <laughs>